Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back for another episode of the HPO Podcast. Today, I am re- I'm joined with a return guest, uh, Nevada Gray, who uh, joined me and uh, Dr. Sean Baker while he was still co-hosting uh, for episode 123 to kind of share her background story. So if you're interested, we'll probably touch on some of the things we chatted about from that episode, just because Nevada has such an amazing background story and has accomplished like tremendous feats uh, since then. Uh, and I think that will add some context to kind of some of the stuff we talk about today. But if you're really interested in a deep dive in that, I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to episode 123 to get her full backstory. Uh, but our kind of primary focus today is going to be uh, one, to kind of catch up and two, take a glimpse into some goal setting stuff that Nevada has been doing recently. And one of those is she wants to take on a marathon for the first time. So uh, I follow I follow Nevada on Instagram and other social media channels. So I had, I I'd watched that kind of take start. I was like, oh man, I got to reach out and get her back on the podcast and see if we can maybe fine tune some things, make sure that, you know, her first marathon experience is as good as possible. And, and thankfully for me, uh, Nevada was incredibly excited to come on and and do this episode. So we're going to chat a little bit about kind of getting started. Some of the rhymes and reasons around some of the things that she'll probably end up doing before the start of her first marathon and hopefully give some folks that are also maybe partaking in an endurance event or a marathon in the early stages, a little bit of advice and some kind of pointers that they can kind of use. But uh, with that said, Nevada, thank you again for taking some time coming back on HBO. Oh, thank you so much, Zach. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it was, it's, it's interesting because, uh, yeah, I was, I was just listening to a podcast that you were on and you were just sharing some of these uh, kind of life adventures you're taking on. And the thing that I thought was really interesting about it was it seemed kind of like you got yourself to a point over the last few years where you, you've met a lot of your nutritional and, and kind of like uh, life goals, I would say, from, from that standpoint, from what you've had historically. And now you find yourself with this kind of bill of health, I, sh- I would say, that is like allowing you to maybe take on some projects that otherwise would have been okay, I maybe need a wait to do this until I get certain other things kind of clear out. Am I kind of looking at that properly? Yes, you are. So um, for listeners, just to give them a little context of my background story, I had a massive uh, disc herniation in my lumbar spine at the L5-S1 that caused a rare syndrome called quadra equina syndrome that required emergency surgery. So essentially after two years of chronic back pain, 
that was unrelenting. I was at work one day and I developed sciatica down my leg, started having trouble walking, was in the worst pain of my life. And this disc came out centrally and essentially crushed the quad equina, which is the horse tail of the spinal cord. And that's a medical emergency. There were several red flags with it, saddle anesthesia, uh, trouble with motor and sensory, trouble bowel bladder and it required an emergency surgery. And after that surgery, I was left with some motor and sensory deficits from the waist down, especially in my right leg. And I had foot drop. So I had to go through an extensive uh, rehabilitation process, which uh, my you know, basic insurance covers uh, roughly anywhere from 12 weeks to six months. And then I paid out of pocket for the duration of what I needed to really get back and fix muscle imbalances that could cause complications down the line. So in addition to that, I also did a ketogenic diet. And I just worked on rebuilding myself after that, learning how to walk again, learning how to walk without being able to feel my right foot on the ground, because it was roughly two years um, before I could fully feel my foot on the ground. And I had to work with the muscles in my foot to be able to move my foot up and down properly. And by the grace of God, that foot drop ended up resolving. It still shows up a little bit when my muscles are fatigued. And one of the goals that kept me going during that time was I had partaked in a mud race prior to my back surgery. And I had done a 5k that I primarily walked, but just accomplishing that made me feel good. And I've always had an interest in running. So what kept me going that whole first year after that whole first year after my surgery and while I was recovering was I wanted to run a 5k because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do this. It was a confidence builder. And I had to correct a lot of those uh, muscles and partake in training to be able to just walk and then, you know, try to run. So I signed up for this 5k on it was Thanksgiving day. And I'm like, okay, that's my goal. And that's what I'm going to work towards because I just needed to have a goal during this recovery process to keep my mind from going crazy. Uh, I also signed up uh, for a personal training certificate, just so I could understand my own rehab, not really, you know, to train clients, but just as another goal to work towards so I could understand why I was doing these exercises and how to be able to build on them once I didn't have my physical therapist guiding me every step of the way. So I completed this 5k without being able to feel my foot on the ground in 35 minutes. And that was 10 minutes below my goal. And I was, I was able to do it. I proved to myself, wow, this is awesome. And then I was told, well, maybe running's not going to be the best sport for you. So I kind of just went back to my normal walking routine and strength training. Uh, my, my strength training was based on the functional uh, fitness model of Dr. Stuart McGill. And I went back to that and I've always had it in my mind. It's always been on my bucket list to be able to run a marathon, uh, to prove to myself that I'm capable of that. It's the ultimate confidence uh, builder. It's an amazing journey. And it teaches you a lot about life when you're training for something uh, like that. So after 2020, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. Uh, in 2021, it's on my bucket list. I, I'm going to run a marathon. So that's where I'm at right now is I'm training to be able to run this marathon. That's, that's incredible. I think, you know, 2020 showed us 
from my experience, a lot of polarization in terms of kind of how I think people responded to, to the pandemic as a whole. And I think I saw at least a group of people kind of in your situation where you were like, okay, I'm going to set some big goals and kind of go after them and try to like, you know, create a little bit of organization through the storm, so to speak. And then there was other folks who, you know, it's obviously situational, but, you know, maybe they got hit a little harder from, you know, losing a job or having a family member, you know, get COVID and have a rough uh, go of a bit or something like that. And, and maybe headed the other direction, or maybe something as simple as having to work from home. And now all of a sudden they're in a completely different food environment and they gain a bunch of weight or something like that. And it seemed like they're tended, at least the stories I was seeing seemed to kind of focus on either the successes or the setbacks. Uh, you know, personally, I like to focus on the successes and hopefully share some of the protocols that those people used and maybe the mindset or, or anything that got them to do it that way versus the alternative. And before we hit record, we were chatting a little bit about just like how you looked at nutrition during that and it helps your family kind of through some of that stuff. Do you want to chat a little bit about that before we get into some marathon training stuff? Sure. So part of my diet, I, I've actually lost um, a total of 92 pounds uh, throughout my journey because I was previously a person that was obese and I had some metabolic issue, health issues that when I discovered the ketogenic diet after my spinal cord injury, it helped me be able to lose weight and put a lot of those issues into remission. So through that, um, it also solved another problem that I was having, which was an asthma and allergy problem. I had chronic asthma and allergies, which led to my obesity because I was always trying to figure out, well, what foods can I eat? Um, I have a gluten allergy. So I, I was always, you know, just trying to figure out, well, what can I eat and feel good, you know, eating these foods without having eczema, without having, you know, autoimmune problems, without having asthma. So throughout the course of 2020 and towards the end of 2019, I, um, I had primarily followed a zero carbohydrate diet. I did a ketogenic diet. I did a zero carbohydrate diet. And then I wanted to experiment with adding foods back in. So I went to see an allergist and I worked with an allergist that helped with an, helped me with an elimination diet and gradually adding foods back in. So I've added about 15 foods back in. And through that process, I discovered a joy of cooking. So I started, um, cooking. I, uh, I learned mostly from watching Julia Child videos and going through her cookbooks and watching other chefs on YouTube. And then, of course, from Maria Emmerich, who is one of my favorite people on this planet. Uh, she sent me some of her cookbooks when she saw that I was uh, taking on this cooking um, hobby and just truly learning how to cook. And through that process, I made these little videos and I, you know, put it on my personal Facebook and my family got interested in low carb because we had um, several family members that had metabolic issues and were overweight. And my family just started doing low carb. Uh, friends started doing low carb and, uh, you know, cleaning up their, their cooking, um, you know, the ditch and switch, uh, you know, replacing, foods that they couldn't live without with cleaner versions and people started losing weight. So my friends and family through 2020 um, ended up losing weight and uh, really taking their health back. And then through that process, I've kind of fine tuned my own diet and got to a place where I feel, you know, really good with the protein energy ratio of, of my food and, um, in combination with how I'm training for this marathon. 
So I'm, I'm happy where I'm at right now with that. That's incredible. I think, uh, you know, every time I hear about Maria's cookbooks and things, I just think she's like the queen of debunking the, but it's too restrictive narrative around keto yes. low carb. Because every time I see her post a new recipe or something, it just like my, blows my mind. It's like, how did you manage to make that low carb? And so it is, it's, it's interesting to see. I mean, for me, I think specifically just because kind of when I started doing lower carb and, and kind of cyclical keto type strategies, it was over or about 10 years ago at this point, or maybe even 11, I'm losing track. It's been so long at this point, <laughs> it was at the end of 2011. So uh, at that point, there just wasn't a lot of uh, the knowledge that there is now or information, or at least I wasn't finding it as readily. Whereas now I think you can you can search pretty quickly and find an alternative to something that you love that would have typically been like a no-go zone for someone following a low carb Atkins type approach, strict ketogenic approach and things like that. So it is kind of interesting to know and see like the different iterations and the options. And if you're like yourself and you really want to get into cooking and practice some of that stuff and fine tune those skills, it just gives you a whole new kind of tapestry to kind of build from. Oh, it's a, it's a whole new world. And Cooking was just not my natural gifting. Growing up, I was always the turbo nerd that was, you know, reading books and um, doing other things other than spending time in the kitchen. And when I really had to cook every single day in my home because we, we were in quarantine, I'm like, wow, I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the science of how flavors went together. And, you know, when I would make a, a Maria Emmerich recipe or a Julia Child recipe and it was low carbon keto and it tasted amazing. And I had those moments where, wow, I cannot believe I cooked this. I need to like take a video. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it was just, it was so rewarding. And then it was so rewarding to be able to share those recipes with my family and friends and watch them get healthy as well. And then through the process, you know, create some of my own recipes. And I've signed up for some culinary arts classes just to be able to go and learn the the fine art of cooking. I think it's it's really interesting. And people are like, oh, it's so easy. You just throw stuff together. But for those of us that are not naturally gifted in that, um, we need to take a class and watch videos. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, just out of curiosity, what were some of the 15 foods that you found after kind of doing the al the elimination diet, allergy testing, and started reintroducing stuff? What were some of those that you found, okay, I'm, I can do okay with these as at least a starting point? So the biggest thing was I added in seafood. So I didn't have enough of a seafood profile as far as uh, micronutrients in my zero-carb diet. So that was one of the mistakes that I made when I was doing that. So it was the first thing that um, I was tested for was to be able to add that back in. So oysters um, and some uh, scallops and salmon and different types of fish. Then the second thing that I was tested for was um, – pollen because I've always had a really uh, hard time during pollen season. I've had really bad allergies. And from that, uh, my allergist realized what was going on with me was that I had something called oral allergy syndrome, where some fruits and vegetables cross-react with certain pollen. So when we actually looked at, at the lists um, of the pollen and then some of the cross-reactors and the food that I was having the most trouble with, um, he realized that that's most likely what's going on. Because what would happen is I would eat an apple or a peach or just a raw vegetable. And I'd feel like my throat was swelling shut. And that's actually 
you are having an allergic response. So the Asthma and Allergy uh, Society, most allergists recommend, well, you pressure cook or you cook the food to denature the allergen. And most people do okay with that. But I wasn't doing okay with that with certain foods. So um, fruit is something that I have a huge problem with um, as far as allergy and with my throat. So I eliminated all, all the fruit, but I've added in the family that I do the best with it. That's as actually the crucifix vegetable family. So the cabbage, the, uh, Brussels sprouts, the, uh, mushrooms I do good with. I do really good with radish. I've added in cauliflower, um, chopped up broccoli. I do well with, and, you know, various spices. So just being able to have that, uh, zucchini is another one that I've done well with cucumber. So those types of, of food, and I always, um, the cucumber I can eat raw, but all the other stuff I make sure is cooked really well. And I've added back in tomato uh, most recently, and I've done really well with it. I haven't had you know any joint swelling, any GI issues, um, any eczema or, or you know allergic reaction. So I feel really good with the foods that I'm gradually adding in. And then when I think of a new food that I want to add in, I'll go and I'll look at those cross-reactor lists and I'll see, well, it, you know, is it a cross-reactor with one of those pollens? You know, could I potentially have a problem with this? And then I'll just try a little piece of it and see how I do. And then you increase the portion um, and you do it over a period of seven to 10 days. And then if you don't have a reaction, then it's usually safe to add in. Interesting. Did, did you uh, stay away from dairy through all of this so far? Or has that been something that you were able to add back? I actually don't do too bad with dairy, but it's not something I eat all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it might be maybe kind of a once a week thing. And then a lot of the food that I was posting on my Instagram, I was actually cooking for uh, family members too. So some of the food I wasn't actually eating, uh, but I would post the recipe because my family liked it. And I thought, well, maybe someone else could, you know, get value from it. Um, but I primarily am a, a savory eater. So I tend to just do a protein and a vegetable. Mm -hmm. That's actually a, a good point. I hadn't, uh, sillyly, I hadn't even thought of that, that like you don't necessarily have to only cook the stuff you can eat. You can make stuff for other people that are, have a little bit of a wider spectrum of what they can maybe tolerate or that they're going to prefer. So it, it opens up that cooking uh, bandwidth, I suppose, in terms of what your options are. Yes, because cooking is fun and then making the presentation and then, you know, it may not be a food I can eat, but a food, you know, one of my family members could eat and like watching them enjoy it and it tastes good. It's, it's really rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing uh, I've been kind of playing around a little bit with more during the pandemic is just uh, the fermentation stuff. So uh, I've been fermenting vegetables for quite a while, probably for the last off and on for the last five or six years. Um, but I got into fermenting dairy a bit during this, this go around. And that one I find really interesting too, because it's actually the easiest one to do, or the, at least the most time efficient one. Like you can get ferment some yogurt in less than 24 hours in some cases. So that one is always, that one was kind of a fun add in on my side with the, the food preparation things. Yeah, it's definitely fun experimenting. And I really love spices and how that can just add so much value to a piece of meat. Um, and whether it's in the air fryer or on the grill. Uh, so that's something I'm really interested in. I just bought the flavor Bible uh, that kind of goes through the science of uh, mixing flavors together. So that's one thing I'm studying now. 
Oh, I'm going to have to check that out. Flavor Bible. So someone's already done the homework. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, uh, that, that's all great stuff. I think, uh, uh, we can, we can jump into some training stuff now too, with a bit of a transition if you want, uh, just for the folks who are listening a little bit of the person or the background here. And I know I shared some of it in the intro, uh, but Nevada is very new to, uh, training for a marathon. So I had sent her what is kind of my beginner or level one. I think it was a 24 week, if I'm not mistaken, right? 24 week. Yes. 24 week program, uh, that I have on my website and really the way I kind of program some of the pre-made plans that I do is I usually operate in like either a 16 week window or a 24 week window. And the reason for that is the 24 week window is kind of going about it as if the person hasn't really done a lot of running at all going into the plan, or if they have, it's been very minimal and very uh, like low intensity, low volume, and they're really just kind of getting started. So it gives us like a little bit of an extra buildup or an eight week process to develop what I would call like an aerobic base or a foundation in which we're going to kind of put some of the more uh, interesting. If we're talking about the spices being the flavor of your cooking, I would say like on that 24 week plan, once you hit week nine, you start getting some of the spices in terms of the type of workouts you do. Uh, the difference then is that 16 week kind of chops off that eight week buildup or that base building. It's assuming the person's coming in with that already kind of established, in which case they don't need to go through a whole nother eight weeks, uh, nor pay me for it <laughs> so that they're, uh, you know, they're ready already to kind of start some of those, those more uh, interesting workouts or a variety of workouts. Uh, generally speaking though, uh, one of the best things I think people can do if they really want to kind of personalize or structure their training is kind of picking the event or the intensity at which they kind of want to perform before they start training, because that gives you a little bit of a compass as to kind of how you're going to structure your training, what you're going to do and when. So Nevada picking the marathon as kind of a goal event is also is good in the sense that you have something that you're you're building toward you have this goal this excitement this motivator but it also gives us a little more direction as to kind of how we want to progress through this sort of thing um so there's always more individualization you can do within you know the coaching side of things which is why we're chatting now is we're going to try to fine-tune some of the stuff that i had on that plan i sent nevada to kind of fit her personal needs so we're going to maybe look at some of that and some of the stages there and, and hopefully, hopefully get, get you uh, a little more comfortable with it. And then obviously I'll be uh, in contact with you throughout and hopefully making some kind of more micro adjustments as needed while you work kind of through that. Cause I really want to see you have a, a very successful outcome at the end when you get to that, that marathon race day. Hey folks, my friends at Egg Weights are supporting this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you're not familiar with them, Egg Weights makes a variety of ergonomic exercise equipment. They have options for boxing and martial arts training, full body workouts with their torque force and torque board, a massage toolkit, and my personal favorite, their running pods. Egg Weights were tested in the University of Southern California Exercise Science Clinical Research Lab and have been proven to do things like activate your core during running, intensify your arm drive, correct poor running form, and more. I love to take my running pods out in the afternoon for easy paced runs where I can focus and work on proper form and mechanics. Having a small ergonomic weight in my hand helps correct my arms from swinging out 
or too far forward. It also prevents my core from relaxing too much through my gait cycle. The running pods come in a variety of weights and colors. They also just recently launched their youth pods, which will be a great tool for kids, youth sports, and coaches to help develop proper form and mechanics from an early age. Head over to eggweights.com, that's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S.com, and click on the running tab to check them out. If you decide they are a tool for you, plug in promo code ZACH15, that's Z-A-C-H-1-5, for an extra 15% off your order. These links and yes, thank you so much, Zach, and thank you for sending this plan because this has been really helpful. Because I'll full disclosure, I know absolutely nothing about running. This is my first time uh, ever attempting something like this, and I want to do it safely. And also, my goal for this race is to just simply finish it. Um, and I think that you know, setting myself with that rather than constraining myself to a time that where I might not be able to keep that time for every single mile. Um, but with the goal to just, I'm going to finish this and you know, I'm going to cross the finish line is what I'm aiming for, for the first one. And I'm sure I'll be addicted to this after (laughs) I I do it. Um, one of the struggles I've had, and I think a lot of, uh, people are having this struggle too, is I've been having a hard time finding a race, uh, because there, because the people that, uh, we're supposed to run in 2020 couldn't. So they've been moved to 2021 and it's been really hard to find a race that's in person, um, where you don't have to qualify for a time or, um, stuff like that. So that's one of the challenges I've been having. So what I did as my backup plan is I mapped a a route, uh, down in Rhode Island by one of the beaches and it's this loop. And there's, you know, bathrooms available along the route. And it's, a, you know, a place where, you know, my, some of my family can sit along the way while I do this. And I figured I would download an app. And that's, that's my backup plan. If I can't find a race, I'm still looking for one. But my goal is to run this in the fall. So even if I can get into a virtual race, I'll probably still run that, that loop. It's a nice little loop. And it's something that I think will motivate me. Um, you know, to be looking at the ocean while I'm, while I'm running, I think it will be. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. And then as far as the training, one of the things we're talking about off air is cramping and uh, a lot of first time runners uh, struggle with that. So I was just curious your insight on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cramping is uh, an interesting one because it seems to impact a pretty big population of the endurance community. And the hard thing about it or the frustrating thing for a lot of people is there's just so many different things that can kind of result in cramping. So it gets kind of confounded in terms of like, well, how do I identify what's causing my particular cramping? Sometimes like if it's a little more localized, I think you can maybe pinpoint it a little better versus like um, kind of cramping everywhere, which could potentially be kind of maybe skewed a little more towards like a hydration electrolyte side of things. Um, some of that gets a little controversial too, where Uh, I think some of the research anyway shows that the body does a pretty good job of regulating that and the likelihood of like depleting electrolytes to the level where you actually get like big cramping issues is, is not necessarily as apparent as we would maybe like it to be. Um, There's also possibly like a placebo effect with that too, because a lot of times what people have recognized I'm cramping, they think it's electrolytes, they take electrolytes and that cramping goes away but it wasn't actually the electrolytes. It was more of a, you know, like a placebo effect because when they ran that, some of those studies, I think they saw that, 
know, just the thought of taking it in was able to alleviate it to a degree. So sometimes I do wonder when folks get like some negative experiences with cramping, especially early in their running, if there is some of that residual background in the back of their head where they're thinking about it and then the slightest twitch kind of turns into a little bit more of a, of an issue because, you know, they're just assuming it's going to get worse or they're projecting that it's going to get worse. Um, uh, that's completely like probably individual and not necessarily something I would say you should count on being the case. Uh, other things too, I think one of the bigger drivers that sometimes gets unnoticed is a lot of times cramping can just occur if you get a little bit ahead of yourself in training or you're going a little too hard, which is very easy to do for folks who are getting into some of the longer endurance stuff for the first time because there is this foundation that oftentimes just needs a little bit of time and dedication to kind of build up and they call it kind of your, your base in aerobic fitness or what would be kind of at or just below what we would call like your aerobic threshold, which is essentially this point in which your body start, once you pass that, your body starts kind of producing higher amount. It's not able to kind of clear the lactate as fast as it's producing it the way it would if you're below that. So you find yourself in this position where even marginal improvements in pace come at a much bigger efficiency or energy cost when you go past that. So really ideally you end up developing that first, regardless of kind of what intensity you're planning on racing at. And if you have that foundation in place, if you think of that as kind of like the foundation, which you're going to build this building, this beautiful race outcome on top of, that's where I think folks end up kind of eliminating some of those situations because they've gotten themselves into a position where now they have a foundation where they can build some of these harder sessions on top of. Um, kind of once they get there, there's kind of a, a general rule of thumb that I really like that was more or less popularized by a guy named Matt Fitzgerald, who uh, he uh, popularized it by calling the 80-20 rule, where you spend about 80% of your running like at or just below this aerobic threshold number, or what he would kind of ballpark is around 80% of your max heart rate. He says like around 80% of your training should always be below that. And then anything above that would be considered moderate or hard. And you want to be kind of picky about that stuff. You want to be doing it because that is going to also get you more fit. It's also going to improve your aerobic threshold. If you think of it as like some of these harder stuff, like these short intervals that you might see later on in your plan, those are going to be useful for for just generating speed, but they're also going to kind of raise the ceiling on where your aerobic threshold capacity can get to. So there is a lot of this kind of bleed over effect from all these workouts. It's not necessarily like, oh, if I do short, short intervals, I'm only going to get faster. I'm not going to get stronger at the slow stuff. Or if I just do long, slow stuff, I'm not going to get better at the fast stuff. There is a little bit of a bleed over. You're going to have the most direct impact by doing the intensity that you're trying to target, which is why kind of when I'm structuring a plan, I'm looking at like, well, what are the least specific things to race day or some potential weaknesses? Let's address those kind of earlier in the training plan. And then as we move through the plan and get closer to the race itself, we just start skewing more of the work and more of the energy towards things that are going to be quite specific to the intensity at which you kind of train at, or I'm sorry, that you're going to race at or perform at. And that's going to be very individual because when you think of the marathon, uh, the marathon is a great example of this actually, because it actually crosses over some intensities from kind of the top end of the field versus kind of the back end of the field. And, you know, you get guys running low two hours for a marathon and they've adapted some of their, their body so well that an intensity that most folks could sustain for maybe 60 minutes, you call that kind of your lactate threshold 
or what you, a lot of people would call a tempo run. On that plan I sent you, Nevada, it's what I'd label as like a six or seven out of 10 perceived effort. And that intensity is, uh, they can stretch that out almost two hours in some cases. And this is just, that's just a lifetime essentially of training and probably like years and years of dedicating towards specifically training for like a low two hour marathon. And it kind of just skews that average a little bit for them. But for most folks, certainly the beginners, we're thinking of that intensity as being something that you could sustain for about 60 minutes. If you were to just see how far you could cover in 60 minutes, whether that meant running the whole time, walking and running or what, you know, whatever combination it ends up being. So that's kind of another intensity zone that a lot of times people like to compare with aerobic threshold because it's another point at which when you cross over it, you start getting much less efficient and your body starts kind of leaning a little more on that anaerobic system than it would be. And it just gets a little more expensive for your body to sustain. So it's an intensity that you also want to usually focus on during your training at some point in time. The big question is just where you end up putting it. Um, the other interesting thing I'll, I'll, I'll pause for a minute after this one. So I don't just do too much of an information dump here, but marathon, oh, keep, keep going. I'm taking notes. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Marathon pace for a lot of folks can also be a little bit of a gray area zone. So, uh, this may be not be as big of an issue for you at your first go of it. I suspect if you would train for marathons for a few years, you'd find yourself in this place eventually. But marathon pace oftentimes falls for a lot of people between their aerobic threshold and their lactate threshold. So you find yourself in this kind of gray area zone or this like moderate intensity zone that isn't like hitting one of these kind of like more studied like crossover points from the intensity like you see like show up on a lab test pretty pretty specifically, like when you cross your aerobic threshold or you cross your lactate threshold. So it ends up being this kind of goofy area um, but you want to work on it because it's the pace you're going to be targeting on race day. And it, you know, the marathon is such a popular distance in the endurance community. Now you actually see a lot of coaching programs that have workouts that are prescribed this workout at marathon pace. So it's kind of, uh, acquired itself and its own intensity range just due to the, the, the volume and, and interest in that particular distance. Um, so with your plan specifically, what you'd likely start to see, especially as we get near the end, we start building out what you call your long run, which is just a run that's going to kind of get you out there a little bit longer than normal. It's going to really kind of help you close that gap between what you've done in the past and that distance of 26.2 miles that you're ultimately going to get to. Uh, so you're working on some of those things like what am I going to do for hydration, nutrition, pacing, stuff like that. We start embedding a lot more marathon pace intensities into that long run as you progress further into the plan. So the big variance from one person next there just kind of almost depends on experience, their personal ability and fitness at the time. You know, you get some folks where to run their long run at marathon pace would mean, you know, you get these, those, those two hour, low two hour guys I was talking about before, you know, they're running sub five minute mile pace. So like, for them to do long runs at that pace all the time is uh, not very feasible. So they may be kind of skewing into that, doing portions of their long run at that. Um, they're definitely not running the 26.2 miles in that long run uh, at marathon pace because then they're they're essentially doing their goal and training. Uh, and then you have folks who it's you know they're they're new to it. They haven't adapted to that intensity. Uh, they're still learning. They're still kind of working through these workouts, learning how it feels to do certain workouts. 
uh, which I really love because like, there's so much that you learn that first go around and just understanding what it feels like to do like a tempo run or to do a run that kind of pushes up to your aerobic threshold or kind of that base run on the plan where you're kind of pushing up to that top end of what would be considered still easy and really learning like how that feels and then identifying that so that when you go to do these type of workouts again in the future, you hardly even need to kind of use other things to kind of help gauge you because you just know how it feels, which is kind of a cool spot to get to and a fun thing to learn. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the, the big kind of upfront information dump that I like to share with a lot of folks because they're kind of get going before, uh, you know, I end up generating a whole bunch of questions and follow-up stuff or like, okay, that's great. But now where do I start type of questioning? So uh, any, anything that sticks out in that, that you want to jump into first, Nevada? Um, one of the things that really sticks out and we were talking about prior to recording was I have my endurance up to about seven miles. And once I start hitting around that, that time, I start cramping and kind of just shutting down. And that might be where I'm kind of going over um, those thresholds that you were talking about. And I'm, I'm training too hard and I'm not realizing it. Um, so what are some tips that you would have? Because I know we had talked about prior that there's different phases, you know, mm-hmm. to, to running the marathon. What are some tips when you start uh, reaching that point where you feel like you just can't go anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, do Is there nutrition? Is there hydration? Uh, do you cut back in power walk or how, how can you, um, you know, through the 24 weeks recognize that that's happening and problem solve so that on the race day, you're not completely, um, you know, just, to a point where you can't even move. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think like what you described is very common because I think a lot of times what people are there, they kind of have their eye on the prize, right? So they're thinking I need to progress myself to the point where I can start wrapping my head around 26.2 miles. Yes. And, and early on, you know, you get to that seven mile mark. And even if you felt like, okay, I took it really easy in the beginning and seven is just where the wheels started falling off it can get a little discouraging sometimes I think as people think to themselves, how am I ever going to get that far? And it does progress. You will see that needle move and it'll be an exciting part to the process as that develops and you get new distance goals and things like that. But there are some things to kind of keep in mind as you do that too. So you don't necessarily want to find yourself in a position where you're kind of constantly always trying to push up to that or always testing that because there is this kind of margin of diminishing returns when it comes to the amount of training load you take on. So if you were just to say, okay, every day I go for a run, I'm going to simply see how far I can get. You're going to find yourself getting to your breaking point, essentially every time you go running. And that is kind of what, that would be kind of like an overload in training in the sense that you're consolidating a huge workload into a very small amount of time. And then the amount of time it takes to kind of recover from that and get to the point where you could go and do it again and possibly push a little further is going to likely be much greater than if you kind of scaled back from that just a little bit and needed less recovery to get back out there and do it again. And then when you look at it from a big picture standpoint, when you look at the overall amount of volume you are spent at the intensity at which you ran those runs at, you're going to end up with more of it. And that's going to be kind of the recipe for success in terms of getting your body ready to tolerate that 26.2 miles. So a lot of times the way to maybe think about it is if 
it, there's kind of two ways actually, and it's likely a combination of both. And one is just how fast or hard are you actually doing these? So a lot of times people think, okay, I should be running or I should be avoiding walking as much as possible. And they're going out there and they're trying to run the whole way. And once they can't run anymore, that's where they stop. When in reality, a lot of people, especially beginners, are going to benefit from structured walking breaks during their training and during the race itself. So kind of embedding some of that into those runs, especially if it's a run where, because it is okay sometimes, and this is where your long run would actually be beneficial, or maybe once a week, and then every two or three weeks, maybe you take a break from it as you're progressing through, you decide, okay, today I am going to try to go and go a little further and see if I can test how far I've gone before and kind of move that needle a little bit. And on those days, I think like intro, like recognizing when it gets to the point where the intensity is kind of getting a little bit too high, taking an opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to start walking for a little bit. I'm going to let my heart rate get down. I'm going to let my breathing settle down. And that's going to kind of help maintain that intensity that you're keeping that intensity in that easy range or not crossing over into the moderate range as frequently. Uh, so some ways to maybe assess that is like, if you're below your aerobic threshold, uh, you should be able to maintain that intensity for, you know, a couple hours, two to three hours, perhaps. So, you know, the more you develop it, the longer you can stretch that out. It, it is a very big window and it's very individual to where your fitness is at. So if you went out there today and decided, okay, I'm going to try to go further than I have before, you'd make it much further from a mileage standpoint if you kept yourself at or below that aerobic threshold, it's when you cross over that where things become to get really unsustainable for a longer period of time. So if you notice that you're getting to a point where the ability to speak or carry a conversation with someone that is like over a sentence is too labored, or you notice that uh, if you're wearing a heart rate monitor, if you notice your heart rate is starting to kind of creep up, uh, above like what we would expect to be kind of in your aerobic threshold target range. Um, those sort of cues are oftentimes ones that you can kind of lean on in the early stages as you kind of just learn what it feels like to operate within that kind of intensity. But I think for you specifically, Nevada, it's probably best, at least in these first eight weeks that we try to keep you around that intensity the majority of the time, if not all the time, and wait for some of those more those those higher intensity or moderate to high intensity workouts like i would describe as six of seven out of ten perceived efforts which are going to be like your tempo runs your lactate threshold efforts or the even shorter sessions like you'll see some short interval sessions which i usually define as somewhere between 30 seconds and four minutes and it's an intensity that you'd maybe be able to tolerate for like 12 minutes if you were just to run as hard as you could for 12 minutes those type of uh, workouts are going to be much more valuable for you once you've kind of a develop a little bit more of that aerobic foundation and have that in place that we can start kind of building those in into your plan if that makes sense yes it does do you recommend uh, a specific heart rate monitor for beginner runners that that we could use it's a good question i don't know that there's necessarily one that is going to be like head and shoulders above the rest generally speaking the chest rate straps are going to be a little more accurate so personally, I use a wrist-based one from a company called Koros. Uh, it works really well for me. I typically get a pretty clean heart rate reading for that. Uh, I do have to tighten it quite a bit to make sure I do, especially if the weather is kind of chillier for whatever reason that impacts it a little bit. Uh, 
but the chest rate straps are going to typically give you a little more of an accurate, consistent reading in a lot of cases. There is some newer technology that has like, it's like essentially an arm strap that goes up kind of above your bicep that I haven't used one in any meaningful way yet to be able to gauge from a personal standpoint, how accurate that is. But those are supposed to be pretty accurate. And I could imagine they would be, cause they're going to be, it's going to be sensing kind of that larger vein that runs kind of along your bicep and probably be able to pick up on that a little bit more. Uh, but those wrist and arm version ones, they're kind of like an optical heart rate is kind of what they're doing to gauge it. So um, those can be very useful because we can, and on the plan I gave you, there's even some kind of cues as to like some percentages of where these different intensities are going to be targeted for heart rate. So if you find yourself with a heart rate monitor and we determine that it's giving you an accurate reading, uh, they can, it can be a really good tool to use to kind of understand what I would consider still the, the kind of gold standard of uh, training, which is your perceived effort. But as I'm sure you're experiencing and a lot of beginners are experiencing, like they're, they think like, well, that's great that that's the gold standard for someone like you, Zach, who's been running your entire life. <laughs> but what about me? Who's never done it before? How do, what do I attach that effort to? And they need something like maybe heart rate or some of those descriptors that I put on the plan. Like, like, can you speak multiple sentences without completely losing your breath? Uh, that sort of things, or thinking of it from a time perspective, like, could you sustain this intensity for an hour or could you sustain this intensity for 12 minutes and kind of some, some metrics that kind of help dial that in for you too. And I also had another question for you, Zach, um, if I may, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos on the posture of running and the arm, arm um, swinging of the arms and just the overall stride. Um, and I was just wondering if you could, for beginner runners, uh, talk a little bit about the posture of running and walking uh, so that we're not, um, like for me, one of my issues is, is I've had some muscle imbalances um, due to my injury. Mm -hmm. So, and I know during my rehab, there was a whole posture for how to learn how to walk. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the posture of running and, and maybe give some advice for beginner runners. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I'm glad you brought it up too, because I think it's oftentimes one that gets kind of forgotten about or perhaps just neglected because, you know, people have lives and they want to get to doing the running and they don't necessarily think about how am I doing it correctly. And, and some of this actually stems back, I think too, is just like you, when you do have someone who has a running background from say like middle school, high school, college, or, you know, joining a club or something like that, it's very different in a lot of cases than, like say if I would decide to play football or soccer or baseball, where there would be a lot of just kind of technique and drill type stuff that would be done before we actually get up there and start playing in order to get your body in the position that it belongs in, in order to do those sports and running really is no different. And there is like, I like to think of it as like kind of like a four point system to kind of start kind of working on that. And one is to kind of just think about running as this process of essentially kind of falling forward and catching yourself you always want to kind of be working with the direction in which you're trying to go versus creating situations where your body is moving in a way that is counterproductive to that forward progress. So uh, a kind of a slight forward lean is a really good place to kind of start. And I like to think of it from like kind of the top down. So when I think of forward lean, I kind of think of the top, like where's my head and kind of my shoulders and my chest area. And I want that to kind of be like in that position to kind of pull me in that forward lean. 
So one thing I'll sometimes do, especially when I'm first getting started with a new training program, or if I'm going to start doing some more workouts and things like that, or I'm just, you know, working on form in general is work on getting in that forward lean position. And one way I do that is just stand up kind of nice and straight. Uh, like I like to say, stand proud. So like, you know, chest out, shoulder square. And then once you're kind of in that kind of good posture, I like to just kind of rock back and forth. Not so much that I feel like I'm you know, going to tip over, but just get kind of comfortable rocking back and forth. And once you get to that point, get to the, let yourself rock forward until you do kind of get in that uncomfortable position and keep letting yourself rock until you feel like, okay, I need to do something or I'm going to fall on my face. When you get to that point, just let your foot fall out in front of you. And that's kind of the positioning you want to get ideally with that forward lean is get to that point where you're leaning just far enough forward where it starts to feel a little uncomfortable from a balance standpoint. And that's where you just lift your foot out forward and let it catch you. And if you kind of just practice doing that, it kind of gets you into the posture, the positioning, I think that is going to be a pretty good spot to start. As you kind of move down, you want to think of like your arms because your arms are you know, part of the process, even though you're not technically bearing any of the impact with them, they are moving oftentimes at the speed of your legs and they can become an inefficient piece of your body if you're not kind of controlling them. So uh, a lot of times what I'll hear folks say, especially at maybe a, you know, a high school track or cross country meetings, you might hear a coach or a parent, their, their kid will be coming through the finish line shoots or down the home stretch. It'll be like, swing your arms, swing your arms. And they're trying to get them to swing their arms. So they're like, you know, running harder and really driving their legs forward. And they mean well with that, but they're kind of telling half the story. Really, you don't necessarily want to be swinging your arms to the extent where you're swinging them backwards and swinging them forward. You want to kind of pop them back or if you will, swing them back and then just let them fall forward. Because when you think about that, if you pop your elbow back while you're running, you're going to push your chest forward and promote that forward lean and by pushing your arm back, you're actually pushing yourself in the direction you're trying to go forward. If you swing your arm forward, you're actually forcing your body in the opposite direction of where you're trying to go. And you're actually promoting yourself to lean back. So the kind of the rule of thumb there is keep your arms nice and tight as you can. Um, a lot of times people are focused on kind of like a 90 degree or tighter angle with their elbows. And then think about just popping that elbow back in a kind of a relatively relaxed fashion and just letting it fall forward. And if you keep that kind of in that little, like a tight range of motion and watch that your, your palms don't kind of cross your sternum, because if you kind of cross your sternum, you're also kind of torquing side, which is also, you know, working in directions you're not necessarily trying to move. That's going to kind of like help that arm carriage. Uh, I think holding some weight can be very useful as you're learning this too, because having that little proprioceptive weight in your hands or something in there to kind of help recognize that that's there can be very useful. And people are just going to be a lot less likely to get inefficient. And I take me, for example, like when I start to fatigue, especially in a race, I'll notice one of my arms starts to kind of like drift out on me. So one thing I work on with that is like when I'm doing like a recovery run where I'm kind of tired or the end of a, um, end of a long run or something like that is I will kind of, I use this product called running pods by a company called egg weights. They make these little ergonomic ones. They just hold in the palm of your hands are about a pound each. And that kind of helps me recognize, okay, I've got something in my hands. Therefore it's going to promote me to kind of have that kind of compact arm promote popping back and falling forward because it just becomes inefficient to be swinging my arms when I have even a small one pound weight in my hand. Uh, so that's kind of the next piece. The other part is just where is your foot landing on the ground in relation to your knee. 
So you can see a lot of, lot of dialogue around kind of foot strike. Like, should I be a forefoot, a midfoot or a heel striker? And there's really not any clear indication that one of those three is necessarily bad, good, or otherwise. A lot of times it comes down to the person's like kind of unique gait cycle and where that foot is landing underneath their bent knee. What you want to avoid is your foot planting out and bearing those impact forces out in front of your knee, because that's just going to drive those forces up into your knees, your hips, and create issues there and potentially issues in your lower back. So if you take a, take a video or some still frame shots of yourself from the side and watch kind of like, well, where is my foot bearing that load of my running stride? And is it coming down underneath my bent knee where your leg can kind of operate as that three foot spring that it is and kind of collapse into that, into that, that's what you're looking for. Uh, so looking for that can help you decide if you need to maybe clean that up or not. If you notice that it is something where your foot's coming out well in front of your knee and you're driving those impact forces up, the next and final piece is one that can usually help with this quite a bit. And in fact, this one actually clears up a lot of the things I've said, because it gets a lot harder to not do these other things right when you're kind of dialed in on this side of things. And that, that last one's kind of your cadence. So how many times are both your feet striking the ground in say 60 seconds? And one easy way to kind of test this is as you're running along, if you have your watch on, is wait for your watch to hit like the top of a minute and count how many times your right leg strikes the ground in 20 seconds. If you take that number and multiply it by six, that's going to give you how many times both your feet struck the ground in a one minute cycle. So a lot of the research is looking at just a cadence that's going to probably put you in a more optimal uh, position is looking at it's a fairly wide range and there's some individuality here, but we're usually looking for over 160 and in most cases under 190. So if you went out there and you found out, okay, I'm 180, which is a pretty common target for a lot of people, then you're probably not overreaching or overstriding too much because it's very hard to cover 180 steps when you're overstriding because just by reaching out that far, you're taking more time to complete another stride. So it just feels kind of unnatural in a lot of cases. So people will typically gravitate away from it. But if you find out, let's say you're a lot lower, let's say you're in the one fifties, that can be an indication that you're overstriding, you're driving that foot out well in front of your bent knee. And it could be beneficial for us to speed that up a little bit in order to get your gait and your mechanics a little more efficient. So then the next step would be, let's gradually work you up to get a little closer to that 180 number. So maybe that first week we say, all right, you were at 150. Let's see if we can get your cadence kind of comfortably up to 160, 165. And once you kind of adjust to that, let's see if we can maybe move it up a little further. Um, and then we can kind of get you a little more into that point until we start recognizing that foot kind of falling underneath that bent knee again. So those are kind of like the, my, like my starter pack, so to speak of kind of mechanics and training and things like that. Uh, obviously like if you really want to get into the nitty gritty with certain things, like a physical therapist and form specialists will be able to do like deep dives into things like a 360 camera analysis of where everything's going, measuring things like, do you have a leg that's longer than other that's going to make your gait a little different than others and make something unique that you want to look for and all sorts of other things like that. Um, but what I just described, I think is a really good starting point for folks to think about and it helps them identify some of the maybe bigger things that they may be doing wrong. And if they can correct some of those bigger things, they can make a lot of progress forward. And then if there's still something that's a little off, they're a little bit more of a micromanaging spot versus having to do a wholesale form change. That is amazing advice because I 
been having a lot of trouble with my hip flexors and lower back. And I'm actually wondering if my foot is out over my knee. Yeah, it's possible. The, the lower back one is kind of an interesting one to me because sometimes what that can be too is if you are, let's say you're wearing a shoe that has a very high heel lift. Um, sometimes what that can do is it, since it's lifting up the back half of your foot, your body's going to find your balance, right? So it's going to find what feels the most comfortable balance. And if you raise up that back half of your foot, your body's going to compensate by kind of pushing your posterior chain back a little bit and pushing your upper body forward a little bit. And what that does is it creates a little bit of a, like a, of an angle along that hip area. And that angle is going to not bear those impact forces as efficiently as say a straight line. The way I like to explain it is like if I took a pencil and stood it straight up and down, I could put like a big heavy history book or dictionary on top of it and it would hold that weight. If I take that pencil and tilt it slightly to the side and create that angle and put a heavy object like a book or dictionary on it, that pencil is going to bend and snap right away. So if you think of those angles the same way as that, as you want them to be like, obviously you're leaning forward a little bit. You would like that. We decided with that forward lean, but you want that forward lean to happen with a straight line within that context. So when you're thinking of if you're creating like angles from whether it's an elevated heel or just your natural like current running mechanic, that angle can kind of, uh, for lack of better words, collect those impact forces in it. Uh, or just that slight leaning forward with your posterior chain kind of pushing back a little bit is going to create those small muscles in your lower back to have to bear the weight of that upper body being slightly forward leaned and that posterior chain being slightly pushed back. And those muscles aren't designed to be able to bear that level of weight. And that's why a lot of times I think runners sometimes end up with lower back issues because they're asking a whole lot out of that area of their body that it's just not designed or ready to kind of take on. If that makes sense. Yes. And that makes me think that maybe I should go have my um, sneakers looked at and make sure that they're the proper sneakers for running. Yeah, it's possible. I think a lot of times if you go into like a specialty shop and you tell, tell them that you have, you're having lower back issues and if they look at your form and they determine that it is a situation where there's an angle there, uh, you know, most brands nowadays, a decade ago, you maybe wouldn't be able to find this, but most brands nowadays, they have options that are, you know, kind of a little bit closer to the ground, more balanced out. So it used to be very hard to find a pair of shoes that didn't have at least, or have like a 12 millimeter offset where the heel was 12 millimeters off the ground compared to, or higher off the ground compared to the forefoot. Now, most brands have something that works down at least down to four millimeters, which is very small or hardly, um, hardly noticeable by your body versus say 12 millimeters. And then everything down to kind of completely balanced out where the forefoot and the back half of the shoe is the exact same distance off the ground. And then Zach, I just had another question too, where we were talking about the posture. So when I was in my rehab, they also talked a lot about uh, diaphragmatic breathing to be able to engage your core. And I was just wondering if you had any tips or advice as far as uh, breathing with running. Yeah. So that's a really good question. So there's a, this has been a kind of a hot topic at the moment. And I think some of it is looking at like moving small stones versus big stones. And I always like to move the big stones first if possible, because those are going to be the ones that kind of move the needle a little bit more. So you know, kind of posture is going to help with that, that breathing. I think in a lot of cases, if you put your body in a position 
where you're able to get a lot of breath in and oxygen in like effectively, that's going to be very helpful. And it, it, it could go back to some of the cramping too, because, you know, if you're not getting in, if the breathing is not happening properly, that can result in like cramping and things like that. It's why sometimes I think if you, someone gets like a side stitch, they stop and they take some deep breaths, that side stitch t- tends to go away. Um, so some of the stuff we talked about the form or that kind of that, that tall, proud stance, kind of pushing your chest out a little bit, keeping those arms compact and popping back is going to put you in a position where when you do take in a breath, you're going to be more likely to kind of get that in and and, and, and breathe in in a way that's less restrictive. Uh, so that's kind of like a little bit of a bigger mover. Um, there's a lot of uh, kind of like, I think maybe smaller movers where people talk about kind of like nasal breathing versus mouth breathing and things like that. At the end of the day, ultimately, like you're looking from, you're looking to get the most amount of oxygen in as you can. So uh, that's going to make the the running easier, the efficiency better and things like that. So you can do some maybe nasal breathing as a way to help determine whether you're going too hard on certain sessions. You know, we talked about those cues earlier. If you can breathe in your nose and out your mouth, and that doesn't feel too uncomfortable to be able to maintain in a lot of cases, that does mean you're probably below your aerobic threshold. So you can kind of gauge if the intensity is maybe a little too hard with that. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily something I would say is going to be in most cases, a big mover for like a new runner to kind of mess around with that in too much, too much degree, unless you find yourself in a position where, um, you're doing say a faster workout and your breathing patterns are like, are really off or something like that. And then I just had another question too. So as the training plan progresses and you you do the longer, uh, runs, as you get closer to the race day, what, as, um, as someone that also follows low carb, uh, ketogenic nutrition, do you have any tips as to the way that maybe I should be thinking about nutrition as it gets closer to race day, uh, to be able to optimize my performance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it gets really interesting, I think, especially with the marathon, but it is also going to be very individual. Cause like we talked about in the beginning, you have some folks who are going to finish this thing in a low two hour range, which puts them in a very different situation as say someone who's maybe doing it for the first time and their goal is to finish in five hours. So that would be like two very different races. It would be almost the equivalent of say like me running a marathon versus me running 50 miles. Like I'm going to fuel differently for a marathon than I am a 50 miler race. So someone who's a marathon intensity for them is five hours versus someone who a marathon intensity for them is two hours are going to be a bit different. So as you kind of move further up in the field and you find yourself running some very fast times um, or you find yourself developed, there is going to be a trade-off from say like a strict ketogenic diet in the sense that it just requires more oxygen to break down fat and use it as a fuel source. And if you're running at like a higher intensity for your marathon, uh, you're going to be using, it's like an oxygen premium event at that point. So having like a no carb approach or a ketogenic approach for that in a lot of cases is going to, is going to reduce your capacity for that one variable, that oxygen variable. Now, as you know, I'm sure there's tons and tons of variables that determine what your time ends up being. So like if other things that you do that are in the low carb ketogenic realm 
improve your improve other variables that are far and above the deficit that you create from an oxygen standpoint, then you may find yourself running faster, even with a low carb ketogenic diet. I think it's why sometimes if you follow this stuff on social media, you'll see folks saying, Hey, if this science about the whole oxygen stuff is true, then why am I running my marathon 30 minutes faster when I went low carb? Well, chances are they had some other variables where by sticking to low carb, for whatever reason for them personally, that way of eating helped them clean up a bunch of other things that put them in a position where uh, they pulled enough levers on those other variables to improve their outcome that it, it exceeded any potential deficit that they created from the lack of carbohydrate. With that said, it's not all or nothing, in my opinion, either. It's not like zero carb versus all carb. Uh, you know, there's, there's kind of middle areas there and there's, it's a, a sliding scale too. So for you personally, I think when you look at this plan and then get close to race day two, it is probably good to look at kind of what workouts you're doing and how you want to fuel for them. So early on, when you're kind of keeping things in that easy pace or below moderate, there's, uh, I think eating the way you have been and what works well for you is perfectly fine. Um, you're, you know, you're working within the realm of what would be considered fine for fat oxidation as a primary, as a, almost a entire fuel source in some cases, uh, as you push up into some of those paces that get maybe a little more moderate to high intensity, that's where maybe kind of bringing back a little bit of carbohydrate during or around that workout. Or if you're kind of a, I want to do it first thing in the morning type of person, but I don't want to eat a whole bunch of food beforehand, you know, maybe dinner before those are some times to maybe bring back some of those carb sources that work well for you digestively work well for you that you enjoy. Uh, those are some, some times to maybe think about having some of that available for your, for your training purposes. And it also will maybe highlight some stuff that'll work well for you on race day too. So uh, one thing you will likely want to consider as you get closer is what do I want to be eating and drinking during the event itself? And I think kind of uh, reintroducing some of these carb sources uh, into your daily nutrition when you're doing some of those harder sessions and fine tuning your long run will highlight like some things that maybe will be useful for you personally that you can kind of trust digestively that you've kind of trained your body to use e efficiently in a way that's going to be meaningful for, for usage on race day. And it, it kind of follows this saying that they, they kind of uh, sometimes half jokingly say within the, all, the endurance community, which is like, don't try anything on race day that you haven't tried in training. And, and that's kind of where I put some of that stuff too. Yes, because I was wondering about that because one thing that I've noticed is when I have uh, a little bit more carb the night before, because I've kind of been experimenting with this because I like to run in the morning, I, I notice that I feel better mm -hmm. versus uh, just having a steak with nothing else just because I'm, I'm busy or too lazy to cook a vegetable. Um, I, I do find that I feel better uh, running. And I did notice that. That's why I was curious um, what your thoughts were regarding that. Because I'm definitely opening to add it in a little more carbohydrate, you know, prior to running, especially as I'm doing the longer runs, because I, I did notice I feel better. Yeah, it's a really good question. It kind of mirrors what my experience was too. When I first kind of started playing around with low carb, I went pretty strict keto for about a month before I started structuring my training again. And then once I started structuring my training, I was noticing kind of what you described where I felt great doing basically everything that was easy endurance and every day-to-day -day type stuff 
But when I push up into moderate or high intensity stuff, I noticed there was just like, felt like there was maybe a gear missing, or I had to work just a little bit harder to hit a certain pace. And what I noticed and what I noticed with a lot of my other low carb coaching clients is that um, we can start bringing that carbohydrate up a little bit more during those phases of training. And what I think is really interesting is once you start doing that, it's not necessarily wholesale back to moderate high carbohydrate like they may have been in the past. There, there seems to be a point where uh, you can find kind of your own personal kind of sweet spot with that. And it's going to also be driven a bit by the intensity and the duration of the event you're training for as well. Uh, for you, for the first time you're doing a marathon, I think it's well within the range where you could still stay what you consider low carbohydrate. I don't think you have to buy any stretch of the imagination, start reverting back to moderate high carbohydrate uh, for any significant amount of time. Uh, perhaps you find that it is worth your while to say one day a week, have a moderate carb day. And that helps you kind of like maintain muscle glycogen levels and things like that and make those workouts feel better. I have some clients that lean that direction because they kind of like staying much lower carb on the re- on a regular basis, but notice their performance improves when they have some carbohydrate. Other folks, they, they tend to be a little more like, let's balance this out throughout the week, in which case a lot of times, especially once the training gets a little more built up, a little more structured, we're looking at their low carb baseline to be more like 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrate versus say a stricter ketogenic approach of 50 grams or fewer. Um, some of that is just, you're kind of hitting fast forward on the metabolism when you start picking up training quite a bit, especially on those days when you're running your long run things and things like that. So there is going to be a little bit more of everything. So thinking even a gram standpoint can sometimes become a little bit of a, a tricky way to, to, to gauge it. But I found a lot of times when I have uh, coaching clients who say what you said, what we first do is we kind of, we inch up from what they're doing. If I have someone who's very low, like a zero to 30 gram type person, we might not jump right up to hundred, 150 right away for them. We might kind of inch up, but when we, what usually what happens is through trial and error, we get to a point where they're like, okay, now I felt like I could nail that workout. And we just kind of take notes and find out where is that spot for them where you are still hitting your workouts. Cause you want the workouts to be your guide to a big degree in a lot of cases. Um, Granted, you know, your goal's different than say someone who's saying, I want to run as fast a marathon as I possibly can. Uh, you, you, maybe that'll be a goal of yours at some point down the road, in which case you can reanalyze kind of how you approach the nutrition if you want about that. Um, versus I want to enjoy this experience, enjoy the rest of my life, finish the marathon and get that first uh, mark put down to kind of build from potentially in the future. I think for someone like that, you could just as easily say, I'm just going to increase my carbohydrate a little bit. See how that makes me feel. If I notice I'm, these workouts are going much better. I don't necessarily have to push the needle too much further on that. A lot of times what I see is that I get someone who's curious and they keep pushing that, you know, if they find a point where they're not gaining any additional benefits, they're not like, Oh, every time I add more carbs, my workouts go that much better. They eventually hit a point where they're like, I'm hitting the splits. I know I should be hitting more. Isn't creating a faster experience or a better experience, so to speak. And then they find, so they end up kind of identifying that window that works best for them personally. Okay. That's fantastic advice. Cause I, I usually keep my carbs between uh, 20 to 30 total uh, for the day on days that I do have them. Cause some days I just do zero carb, mm-hmm. but prior to doing, you know, my seven mile run, which is kind of my baseline where I'm working from, I would do about 60 between 60 to 70 the night before with dinner. And then when I would run the following morning, I would feel really good. Mm -hmm. 
So that's, that's kind of, I think my sweet spot right now, but I'll definitely be experimenting with that. Yeah. And another thing that maybe would be interesting to try next time you do that run is kind of do what you said, where you bump up your carbohydrates a bit that night before. And then when you go out for that run, it's totally fine to go out there with no fuel before. Uh, in fact, you're leveraging an overnight fast. And then by say getting maybe 45 minutes into that run, uh, your fat burning is going to be pretty much primed. And then maybe try introducing a little bit of carbohydrate as you get kind of closer to that point where normally you would start to kind of fade off or feel like you're not quite getting or you're about to tap out, so to speak, and see if maybe a little bit of intro run carbohydrate introduction can kind of help you uh, feel good enough to maybe push that a little bit further and see if that kind of helps out. So that would be kind of the, the intro workout strategy versus like the before or after. And then another question I had for you, Zach, is, um, and I know a lot of people probably have this question too, is regarding stretching, a stretching routine. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just wondering what you would recommend for beginner runners uh, as far as uh, developing a stretching routine during training. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I had thought about this actually, and then forgot when you were mentioning kind of tight hips, because <laughs> that one is like super common for runners. And I think a lot of it is just running is such a different mechanic than sitting in a chair. And since most of us are sitting in chairs for at least part of the day, I mean, you do a hard, a hard workout or a long run, there's a certain amount of sitting that's going to be like kind of necessary for recovery or, or meaningful for recovery too. But what you're kind of doing is you're putting yourself in that position where you're, you know, your, your, your hips are kind of, or that, that area is kind of compressed in the opposite direction. Um, so it gets that tightness as you kind of go through that full gait cycle you hit a point where the normal range of motion is just a little tighter and you feel that. And that tightness in the hips, sometimes you feel it in the hips, but sometimes you actually, it surfaces kind of around the knee area too. Because a lot of this stuff is connected. And if one area is tight, it can create the pain sensation somewhere else. So sometimes runners will complain of like a patellar tendon pain or inch. Sometimes it can be patellar tendonitis or something like that. Other times it can be simply their hip is tight and they need to loosen that out. So there's some really good hip stretches that I like. Um, one is that where you kind of get into a position where you're putting your weight on one knee and you have your other leg out in front of you, uh, kind of in a kneeling position. And once you're in that position, you get into like kind of an upright posture with your upper body. And then you kind of create like this bowing effect with the lower half of your body and the upper half of your body, where you're kind of driving your hips forward. And you'll feel this nice stretch kind of going across that hip bone on, on the side that you're stretching forward. Uh, it's going to be the leg that you have uh, anchored on your knee is where you'll feel that stretch. And then you kind of reverse with your other knee and your other foot forward and do it again, the other side. And that stretching, I think is one of the best ones that I've found in terms of kind of helping with just some running related stuff. Um, there's other things too, like, like just uh, some kind of like poses or dynamic movement type things. I think like keeping things like sideways leg swings, forward leg swings, forward lunges and things like that can kind of just keep that running mechanic range of motion in place and keep that a little bit of that elasticity there. It is interesting. You don't want to be necessarily be so flexible that your body is like super receptive to overstriding and kind of flailing around in areas you don't necessarily want it to be. Uh, if you think of it kind of like a, a rubber band that is like kind of perfect where it's not so loose that like it doesn't really do anything because it's so flimsy, but not so tight that you can barely move it. You want to be somewhere in between that where 
it's sort of tight. So you get that snap and that running, that, that, that good power output on, on that running gate, but also loose enough that you can move through that full gate cycle. Because if you're restricted to the point where you can't move your gate cycle, you're going to have improper form and pains and things are going to show up in other areas that are maybe not as clear as to where the actual cause is. Um, so a lot of those things I think are kind of like manifest from the hip in that area. So that's usually kind of a good place to start. Um, but one thing too, uh, on the, on the plan I sent you to, there's some tabs on the bottom that has some kind of those dynamic movements and some of those stretching things that I really like to kind of incorporate as kind of a start. So, uh, kind of clicking on that would also give you some, some good kind of starting points for some different things too. Like for me personally, I do some like ankle mobility type stuff where I'm doing some movements that cause my, that, that just works on flexing my ankle in a variety of different ways. Part of that's because my ankles got really tight at one point in my career, got so tight to the point where it kind of messed with my form, especially on downhill running. Cause I wasn't able to flex as far as I needed to bear the impact properly. And it created an issue where I ended up getting a stress fracture in my sacroalus. So it's like, you know, that's another area. Sometimes you identify these areas that are uh, kind of maybe unique to you, but can be semi uh, consistent within most runners. And I think ankles can be one, especially when you're running a lot of flat concrete type stuff. You can sometimes get this, some ankle mobility type things can be useful. Hip stretching can be useful. Um, some of those dynamic moves for hamstrings and quads, I think can be very good um, kind of things to add in as, as starters. And then if something pops up that is kind of unique to you, you can start finding some different stretches and mobility things that are, that are helpful there. And then I wanted to ask you too, Zach, what was, what, what were some things that got you through your first marathon? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think one thing that is, uh, or actually a couple things. One is picking the marathon and signing a trainer for it is awesome because it gives you that goal. It gives you that end target, that motivator to get started, to stay consistent. It does tend to be kind of a long-term goal in a lot of cases. I mean, I sent you a, essentially a six-month program. So, you know, day one excitement of opening up that plan and saying, I'm going to do this is likely going to be a lot higher than say, 50% of the way in where you're still 12 weeks out, but you've done enough where, you know, the routine is maybe a little less exciting. Uh, you know, there's a, maybe a little wear and tear from the training and, uh, you know, you lose a little bit of that motivator from that. So picking kind of like small wins to kind of target to along the way where maybe you're even scaling them down to a daily or a weekly standpoint where you look at like specific workouts in the plan where you see like, Oh, it looks like I'm doing this type of workout for a few weeks. Start looking for things like, am I doing these workouts at this intensity faster? So am I seeing progress? So like what we talked about in the beginning with your kind of easy pace or your aerobic threshold and below, are you noticing that by doing the training, you're finishing these, or you're covering a little more distance in a given time. Let's say you do like a 60 minute uh, base run, which would be that four out of five, of 10 perceived effort on my scale or like kind of right up to your aerobic threshold or just a little below it. Are you noticing that you're covering more distance in that 60 minute window? Things like that can be very motivating, I think too, because you're seeing that progress up front. It becomes less about like trying to just accomplish that end goal, but also having these mini goals set, set there. And I think that actually carries over into the race itself too, or the event itself where it's pretty tough to wrap your head around 26.2 miles. So if you find yourself kind of thinking about finishing the entire race or overthinking the entire race itself, the days leading in, 
it can be kind of anxiety inducing. It can create a lot of mental fatigue that is unnecessary and can be counterproductive. So thinking of it, like as you're getting to that week before the race, you're 99% of the way there, even though it's 26.2 miles, you just spent nearly six months spending hours and hours, days and days, weeks and weeks preparing for this. So you've actually done the majority of it. And the 26.2 is just kind of the cherry on top. It's the kind of the award for your efforts for putting in all that work. And that I think helps minimize things when it gets tough out there. Cause there'll be a point during it where you're like, what did I get myself into? Can I really do this? And when you kind of get in that position, thinking about how you're actually so close to finishing, even if it's only halfway through the, the marathon itself can be a really good kind of psychological position to put yourself into. And then above that also breaking the race itself into chunks. So maybe you decide three mile increments are very maintainable for me. So I'm going to operate under the intensity that I know is right. I'm going to do the fueling and hydration strategy that I learned works well for me during training, but I'm only going to focus on three mile segments at a time. When I get to the end of one, three mile segments, I'll start thinking about the next. You just start chipping away at that. And before you know it, you get to your last one and then you can start really getting excited because it's the last one. <laughs> That's great advice. I'm definitely uh, going to take that with me, my my first race. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to you kind of getting into the plan full scale, and uh, I'm excited to help you out along the way. So definitely make sure you're reaching out to me if something doesn't look clear or if it's confusing or if you need me to rephrase something, I'd be happy to kind of guide it and adjust as needed as we go. But um, before we head out of here, uh, I want to give you a chance to kind of share with the listeners kind of where they can find you, whether it be on social media or internet or anywhere else. Sure. So my main platform is uh, the Paleo Pharmacist on Instagram, and I have a food blog at thepaleopharmacist.com that I just started. I'm creating that with my family. Uh, we're actually putting all of our recipes and adventures of cooking there. And then I'm also on Twitter at uh, Pharmacist Paleo. Awesome. And I'll just, I'll just give one quick announcement for the listeners. If you're about to start a fast, wait to go on the Instagram account until after you're done. <laughs> and unless you're going to spend the entire fast cooking for your post fast meal. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on today, Zach, and for mentoring me through this uh, process and for sending me your plan. And I hope a lot of listeners, uh, get value out of uh, learning through my experience with this, especially people that are doing a first marathon, because after 2020, I think, you know, a marathon, it's a great way to get your mojo back. Awesome. Well, it's my pleasure having you back on Nevada. I think we'll have to definitely have a third, a third episode at some point down the road when you're ready. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Take care. Hey folks. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram 
at ZBitter on Twitter and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.